Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on this episode is Kerry Emanuel. This is a big one for me because Kerry is one of the most accomplished atmospheric scientists in the world, and in my view, he is the number one expert in the world on hurricanes. So I'm not going to list his honors or the bullets on his CV, but let's just say it is very long and impressive. Maybe the most important scientific result of Kerry's career has been his theory of hurricane potential intensity. That's a theory that predicts the maximum strength a hurricane can achieve given the climate in which it occurs. He came up with that result when he was still in his 20s, and a long string of important research results by him and others has grown out of it. In the 90s, Kerry explained the role of the ocean in hurricane intensity and used that to make forecasts better. Then came an enormous burst of groundbreaking research on hurricanes and climate change, continuing to the present. And in the mid-2000s, he developed a totally original model for hurricane risk, meaning it can calculate the probability of a major hurricane strike, even in places where there's no historical precedent. Kerry has also done important work on many topics other than hurricanes also, especially many aspects of deep convection in the tropics, and we talked about a lot of this, but by no means all of it in the interview. Kerry's been at MIT for almost all of his career, including his time as an undergraduate and graduate student. So he was one of my professors when I did my PhD there in the 90s, and I've known him for over 25 years and learned a great deal from him. Kerry was not my PhD thesis advisor, but I started collaborating with him around 10 years after I finished, and we've worked together quite a bit since then. We talked through some of his biography, including how he got his PhD faster than anyone I've ever heard of, and that's a story I'd heard many times, but never from Kerry himself, so it was good to hear the legend first person. We talked about his evolution on the topic of climate change, from being skeptical of the human role in global warming to being entirely convinced and a strong advocate for action on climate. And then we talked about politics, including how Kerry left the Republican Party and his run-ins with the Tea Party and climate deniers. And then late in the conversation, we got into the role of money in research universities, this is a topic that has got great attention at MIT in particular after the Media Lab there was found to have taken a lot of money from Jeffrey Epstein, and this got carry some traction into his efforts that were already underway to uncover and fight against the influence of the Koch brothers on climate research at MIT. It was such a stimulating conversation because Kerry's a great scientist but also amazingly articulate with well-thought-out and original opinions about many, many topics, and he's not inhibited at all about talking about them, even the ones that are difficult. So without further ado, let's get on with it. Here's my conversation with Carrie Emanuel. Well, first of all, cheers. I'm sorry I didn't have alcohol, but <laughs> at least we have ice, iced tea uh, beverages, spark, sparkling iced tea beverages. Right. Um, yeah, thanks, Carrie, for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I thought we might start with your biography since... It's not well known, or at least I don't know it really. Um, other than that, from you're from New England somewhere. Do you want? To, where where, 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 are you, how, where does Carrie Manuel come from? <laughs> I have a checkered past. <laughs> so I was born in Cincinnati. Oh, really? And um, lived there for two years. Naturally, I have zero memory of the place. Yeah. And my family then moved to the western suburbs of Philadelphia, where I lived until I was ten. Went to school. No kidding. And then we moved to Palm Beach, Florida, of all places, where my grandparents were living. And uh, then I was shipped off to a prep school in western Massachusetts oh, okay. for four years. Which in, one? In Deerfield. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
and I came to uh, MIT from there. It, Deerfield sent almost all of its uh, graduates to Ivy Leagues. Yeah. I'm slightly horrified at graduates who go to technical schools, but I was one of a very few who did. What did your folks do? Well, my father was a mechanical engineer. He okay. was a graduate of Cornell, and he ran a division of a company that no longer exists called Philco, which was bought yeah, by Ford, yeah. uh, which made appliances, and he was in charge of the washer-dryer division. Okay. And he and his buddies actually came up with a single machine that washed and dried clothes. It's a long, interesting story behind that. Wow. Yeah. All right. So, the mechanical engineer. So, when did you get interested in science? I was interested, according to my older brother, who's almost seven years older than me, I was interested in whether... Uh, already when I was two, uh, he said I used to um, crawl over to the window oh, whenever so, there was a thunderstorm. So you're a weather weenie? I'm a weather on. weenie, yeah. Oh, I'm okay, a I didn't know weenie. that. I figured yes. you were just one of like the rest of us who just did physics or something. No, and no, no. Into I was a weather weenie, but I didn't imagine until I was in high school that one could actually make a reasonable profession out of it. And I also did love physics and math, and it was nice I was able to sort of combine all of that. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay, so you went, so you graduated from Deerfield Academy, went to MIT. Yep. Right? That was in the 70s or that so? That was in, so I started, I graduated from high school in 73. Right. And uh, came into MIT in the fall of 73. And it was possible, still is possible, to go through MIT undergraduate in three years. And I was able to do that. I think the yeah. requirements were a bit lax. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's why. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, and I had no intention of going into uh, graduate school, actually. Why would you want to do? Well, I wanted to get a master's degree, and then I wanted to spend some time in the field. That's what I really wanted to do. But, I mean, so the master's, yeah. you just stayed. You, yeah, I just stayed. Yeah. I just stayed on and started a master's degree. I'd already, you know... Uh, back in those days, we had separate departments. There was the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Yes. And then there was the Department of Meteorology. They were both in the same building. Yes. But they were which different was, departments. Which was this building? Uh, it was this building. Because this is one that states to this. Pay, yeah. I.M. Pay built it in the... 63. Six, okay. 63. Yeah. I.M. Pay built this. Uh, in any event, you couldn't get an undergraduate degree in meteorology. It was a strictly graduate department. But I did work with uh, Fred Sanders and mm -hmm. Joel Charney and so forth. So what was your major then? It was in earth sciences. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, I got an earth sciences degree. But so it meteorology was, sort of a, was a department. It just didn't give yeah, a major. Okay. Yeah. So I effectively majored in meteorology. I wrote my thesis in it. But the degree says earth oh, sciences. Oh, you had an undergraduate thesis. Yeah. Okay. Is that, um, does people, is that, is that normal? Right? Does everybody do an undergraduate? I'm not even sure whether that's true. I'm sure I wrote a master's. Well, actually, it's more complicated than that. I wrote a master's thesis that turned into a PhD thesis. Okay, so right tell here. me this story because I've heard this from everybody <laughs> but you. Well, it's a bizarre story and I don't understand it myself. So I uh, was determined to stay on for a master's degree and I wrote it. It was very hard in those days for me to see my advisor. He was traveling very extensively. Which was Charney. Charney. Yeah. Joel Charney, a wonderful man. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, was traveling a lot. He was on sabbatical. He was in Venice. I didn't meet him very many times at all. And I sort of had to write my thesis in isolation. 
And finally, on one of his, um, his, his pit stops back here, I managed to hand him, <laughs> you know, it was a handwritten draft. That's what you did in those days because yeah. it was expensive to have things typed up. You had to pay someone or do it yourself. Yeah. And so uh, he disappeared and I didn't hear from him for a long time. And I thought, well, who knows what's going to happen? And he did, he did, um, phone me up at some point. It was in the, I think it must have been. Yeah, it must it must have been January of '78. He phoned me up and he said, "This isn't a master's thesis," and I my heart sunk. <laughs> so I put all that time into. It. He says, "You should turn this into a PhD thesis." And uh-huh. I said, "Well, I you know I hadn't planned to do that, and I, I planned to go off the summer." He says, "No, I think you can do it in the spring." And I thought this is not right and this doesn't doesn't sound right but Wait, so you had, you'd been a you'd been a master student for a year a year and a half a year and a half okay yeah, i've been a master student for a year and a half so he he was a very persuasive person and so i turned this master's thesis without a whole lot more work into a phd and it was kind of a b- bizarre sequence of events because everybody was caught off guard one of the faculty members finally said you know um Jewel, Kerry hasn't taken his qualifying exam. Well, you don't need to take a qualifying exam for a master's. So, of course, I hadn't <laughs> taken it. So, I turned in my thesis, and then I took my qualifying exam. <laughs> I don't know if that you can find another person at MIT who did their qualifying exam after they turned in their thesis, but that's what happened to me. Oh, wow. It was bizarre. Uh, but And so, in the course of... A little less than a year, I went from not knowing what I was going to do and not having a job to basically having a, a uh, assistant professorship at UCLA lined up for the fall. And so, wait, wait, so wait a second. So Char- did Charney line that up? Because he'd, Char- he'd been at U- Charney was uh, got his PhD degree from UCLA. Yeah, I know that. Had, yeah. And was uh, was in residence there because he was on sabbatical. Very, you know, his family, he grew up in L.A. I know that, yeah. And so he, there was an opening in the department, and he suggested I apply for it. I went out in April of 78 and gave a talk, and I think by June they had hired me. And in how old day, are you at this point? 23. Holy crap. So it was all, it was all <laughs> a lot to, now there are things I know now, on the other hand, Adam, that I didn't know then, which was Jewel knew, but I didn't know that he was dying. Uh, of uh, cancer, or that he was very likely to die of cancer. And I think he was hurrying a lot of things up. Uh And I was one of the things he was hurrying up. Uh And I think that's why it happened, because I was not prepared for it. You know, I had to go out to UCLA and think about teaching a class uh, where the graduate students were mostly older than I was at the time. I bet. And not really knowing the subject. Well, as you know, because you're a teacher... Yeah. When you teach something for the first time, it's a, it's this terrific experience of becoming acquainted with the level of your own ignorance of the subject. <laughs> right. You think you might know it, yeah. and then you start putting together notes and imagine standing in front of a group talking about it. It's a very, it focuses your mind. What was the class? What was the first class? Atmospheric convection. And so um, I had to teach my first course. It was and wait, an awful just- lot happened. So wait, I want to. I, I don't want to. I don't want to lose this. But just before we go, so what was the thesis about that got you the PhD in such short order? What was the topic of that? Well, I was very interested at the time in mesoscale meteorology in general, and in particular in prefrontal squall lines. 
They were regarded, maybe to some extent today, still regarded as a bit of a mystery. Why do lines of thunderstorms sometimes form well out ahead of cold fronts? Mm -hmm. They're usually associated with them, but not directly. Yeah. And so I sort of cast around for ideas, and I looked at the uh, synoptic environments. There's always a lot of shear around. And looked at what kinds of instabilities might account for this and sort of hit on the idea that it was uh, a form of symmetric instability. And at that time, the classical, yeah, the classical sort of hydrodynamic theory of symmetric instability was well developed by Peter, people like Peter Stone. Mm -hmm. and But there was no moist theory of symmetric instability. So I wonder what would happen if you tried if you had conditions for this instability, but also included phase change of water. And that's really what my thesis is about. Okay, all right. So UCLA, you, uh, you were there for a few years? Three, three years. As a very young person. Yeah. Teaching in... Uh... I was, and it was sort of isolating, because um, intellectually isolating. The, the older professors there were very good, but they weren't very communicative. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a lot of interactions with, you know, I and I a lot of respect for them. Yeah. But cultural, I, you know, something uh, yeah. was there. And I, the students I had were very eager, very enthusiastic, and bright, but I didn't get those students for myself. I mean, I had yeah. them in my class, but I, this, my own graduate students were uh, not terribly motivated and so mm -hmm. i was struggling a bit i have to say those first three years also i didn't particularly like la uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> i a lot of i still have a lot of friends there i actually go back and visit even now yeah and i think it's a fun place to visit but i didn't particularly enjoy living there so i decided after three years i would try to move uh -huh. and, and i ended up uh, with offers from the University of Chicago and MIT. Yeah. And it, just, it was just about a coin flip, actually, at that uh -huh. point, because I liked both a lot. Yeah. Chicago, wait, Chicago. Who was at Chicago? Was Linson still at Chicago? No. No, Linson wasn't at Chicago. It was pretty was much the old guard. It was George Platzman was there. Uh -huh. They had merged meteorology with geology already, and that All was right. a very rocky merger. Apparently, no pun yeah. intended, but it, it uh, I remember Richter was uh, not, uh, yeah, Richter was there. Who else was? And, um, oh, and um, Pujita was still right. there. Um, so it had sort of an interesting cast of characters. Oh, and uh, um, Roscoe Braham was there. Yeah. Uh -huh. But I, you know, Chicago, there was a certain intellectual atmosphere at Chicago that I liked very much yeah. and actually preferred MIT. But I saw that, M that I was more likely to get good students uh -huh. at MIT. And that's yeah. what motivated my choice finally to come here. Right. So when did you get here? Uh, that was the summer of 1981. And so Charney was still around. No, Charney no? had just... So Charney um, was the person who worked hardest to convince me to come back to MIT. But he didn't make I it. I remember, too. but he didn't make it. He oh. died, I think, in May, so maybe around May of 1981, I sometime see. in the spring. And I came two months later. Wow. 
so he had already gone. And, right. But Lorenz was here. Loren, yeah. Sanders was here. Uh, yeah. But you could see that the department had to remake itself, and I knew that. And I wanted to be in on that. I wanted because to be, Charney was gone. Because Charney was gone, and a lot of the other people were, you know, it was only a few years before Fred Sanders retired. Yeah. Not very many years before Ed Lorenz retired. Right. That, that, that MIT had to rebuild this field quickly. Okay, so early 80s, you get here, Charney's gone, the department gets rebuilt, you hired a whole bunch of people. I mean, Lindzen and... Yeah, Linson Plum came, came in the, that decade. 83, I think, Linson came. Yep. Yeah, Alan was like late 80s, I want to say. That's right. A little bit before. So, yeah. Right. So, you would have been here 12 years when I got here. So, when did you switch to Hurricanes? Well, that was, I would say, in the mid-80s, I got interested in Hurricanes because, as I recall it, I was asked to either teach or substitute teach for a tropical meteorology course. And it's a classic case of sort of thinking you understand it, going through the notes you took years ago and through published papers. In my case, realizing I didn't understand any of it. Yeah. And then realizing that it had to be wrong. Mm. And that sort of pulls you in because then you say, well, what's right? Mm. And then discovering that they actually had it right a long time ago in the early 50s. Mm. Pretty much they had it right. People like Herb Real, Ernst Kleinschmidt were really on to what was going on. This is an actually very fascinating chapter in history. They, they had developed this school right through the late 50s. Joanne Malkus was part of yep. this. Later Simpson. And yeah, later Simpson. But when the sort of Cisco revolution happened with Uyama and Charney and Eliasson. Conditional instability of the second conditional kind. Conditional instability of the we're, second kind. We're trying kind. to anticipate the possibility that somebody who's not an expert might listen to this. Yeah, sorry, I'm following. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I might do that once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when that came along, it, there are two things you can say about it. First of all, there, in none of the foundational papers for that theory was there even one reference to all that earlier work, which mystifies me to this day. Right. It's not like, well, you know, Kleinschmidt said this, but here's why we think that's wrong. They didn't, they just ignored right. it. A lot Maybe of the, they didn't know about it. A lot of the tropical meteorology literature was like that through the yeah. 90s and 2000s when I was trying to learn stuff. Yeah. Different schools of thought with no reference to each other. But no anyway. reference, and it was mystifying, and it was enormously popular, and it's what I learned when I was in graduate school, a CISC conditional instability because well, charney was partly responsible for it yeah and he was he had written a lot of really beautiful papers uh-huh. and i think to be you know blunt about it this one wasn't correct yeah right? there's something energetically inconsistent about the idea but it caught on i wrote papers on cisc yeah but not for hurricanes yeah uh, early on and um Anyway, uh, it was an eye-opener for me to uh, rediscover. I had actually written one paper in 1986 on sort of steady-state hurricane structure, and then I think it was Alan Thorpe said, what did you know about this earlier work? Mm -hmm. Also, Doug Lilly had done pretty much the same thing I had done, it turned out. Yeah, he did. Did he publish? Yeah, no. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> he tried to, it was rejected, and then he never pursued it. No kidding. And Rich Rotino dug out this, well, Doug was still around, 
And I said, God, Doug is doing exactly the same thing. And so this is all very interesting. And I got together with Doug and, said, and we wrote a conference abstract together, mm-hmm. which you can find if you're diligent so about it. So this is in the early 80s or something? This would be in the mid-80s, yeah, uh-huh. in the mid-80s about this. And the, we had slightly different ideas. So we agreed that he would write a paper and I would write a paper and we would publish them back to back. And he, <laughs> he didn't, I think, as an act of mentorship or kindness or something to me. He didn't do his part of the bargain. I see. And I ended up publishing my part alone, which I think was... So this was the original 86 one. Right. Wow. Yeah, but tr- but basically Lily had done... It wasn't exactly the same, but it had done the same thing before. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, this happens all the time in science. You do something, yeah. you think, oh, this is really great, and then you discover... It had been done. But, but, we, but it's but, not that often that it's been done by somebody famous and you meet them and they haven't yeah. published it and they have it sitting on there. I mean, that's kind <laughs> of unusual for something this big. Yeah. I mean, but I mean both, in some sense, you're still mm-hmm. building on this and even in your career now. Yeah, this yeah. is this, yeah. I mean, you've done a lot of things, but this one in particular has not gone away. This no. Is a big thing. This turned out to be a big deal. Well, it, this is what became the theory of hurricane potential intensity, essentially, that we all still use now. Right. And um, But it has to be said that neither Doug nor I were aware, I don't think we were aware at the time, I have to be careful about the timing of the earlier, the much earlier work in the 50s. Been been done this. And oh, even then you weren't aware of it by the time you published it? No, I don't think I was aware of Klein. So if we go back, there's no citation to that. Because I know I, later you cited that all over the oh, place. Oh, yeah, 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 because I found out about it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Alan Thorpe brought it to my attention. The problem, the Kleinschmidt paper was, it was published in German. Right. I don't know German. And I, anyway, I don't, didn't come across it. Even if I'd seen the German paper, I would have recognized the equation. Right. Well, I mean, obviously yeah. it didn't make that big of an impact or somebody would have written something in English. He didn't do the, he didn't do the whole problem the way Doug did and later I did. Yeah. But he got at least halfway there yeah. and understood it. What, what's remarkable to me, Adam, is that, you know, Real and Simpson, Real and Mulkus and Kleinschmidt had, Basically, we're on the right track. Yeah. And we got derailed as a community in the right. 60s. Uh, and there was this intellectual excitement, really palpable excitement about this. Um, pa- set of papers that totally ignored this earlier school. So, I mean, do you think it's possible to explain briefly, like, what, what was the wrong idea and what was the right idea for those who don't, I mean, what the issue is yeah. here, the science issue? Well, I think... The science issue was, and it's still it's still contentious even today. Yeah. Whether an atmosphere that is convecting, right, has yeah. has cumulonimbus clouds, it's producing rain, um, in sort of a normal state, whether there's enough energy in that state to make a hurricane out of it. Yeah. without extracting more energy from the ocean. Yeah. And so the Kleinschmidt idea and the real idea was the energy that's driving the hurricane is coming locally from the ocean. Yeah. You have these enormous rates of evaporation in the core of a hurricane. It's a, it represents a heat flow from the sea. Yeah. That's what's driving it. The earlier theories ignored the CISC, sorry, the CISC, idea ignores yeah. the local flux of energy from the ocean and yeah. says you're just converging energy from the environment. Yeah. That's in a nutshell the difference. Good. Yeah. 
good. That, that's a good uh, <laughs> summary. Yeah, and this debate is still going on, as you say, in a lot yeah. of context. Not so much. Well, even for hurricanes, a little bit. There's still some people arguing about it. Yeah, I don't think they're. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm pretty convinced. That you're right. <laughs> but so I got here in the '90s, and I, you know, I did my thesis on something else, but I took classes from you and everything, and I, I got into tropical meteorology after leaving uh, here in the in '97. So my first experience of the of tropical meteorology in general and hurricanes is in the sort of late 90s to early 2000s. But at that time, I, I want to get your sort of impression on a, a sort of cu cultural or political dimension of, of the field, of the internal dynamics of the field. Like, I have the impression, so by the time I got into it, you know, in my mind, I mean, your way of seeing the world was the way I learned it. So I, you know, I came into tropical meteorology pretty much understanding it as as you had, because, you know, I learned it from you. In a way that isn't true anymore, I think, at that time, tropical meteorology still had a different kind of cast to it. And there was a large contingent of very uh, influential and entrenched people. I mean, Bill Gray is very prominent among them, but there were others who saw the world very differently. And it wasn't just about CISC versus not CISC. It was about like almost the, the viability of um, the whole GFD, geophysical fluid dynamics, or even just physics approach to the problem. I mean, Gray actually wrote published things saying you shouldn't use the equations of motion to study tropical meteorology, which I just found astonishing. But... So even though, I mean, I and all the students here sort of thought of you as the authority on it, I get the sense that, er, and now everybody does, but I mean, I got the sense that early on, despite all your s success, that there was this sort of some count, you know, that you were some sort of countercultural within, even though in, in, in the rest, in the other parts of the field, you know, the sort of GFD that Charney and Lorenz and these guys were doing was totally uh, the dominant paradigm, right? It was winning, yeah. <laughs> winning all the battles, but... In tropical meteorology, it was a different um, view of people who believed that it was all about the observations and that you couldn't study the tropics if you don't live in the tropics. So I'm just curious how, how you experienced that. I mean, in other words, sure. to some of the old guard, you must have seen like the cocky young kid with the fancy equations. Hmm. And like, did you did you feel that? Oh, yeah. We all did, I think, in those days. It, it helps to put this whole problem, which I'll try to describe in my own terms. Yeah, please in a longer historical context, maybe a very long one. So there was always an interest going way back in why hurricanes happen. And uh, some of the earliest ideas in the 19th century were what we would call almost purely thermodynamic ideas. But then when we had the sort of charney Edy revolution in the mid-20th century, that discovered the underlying theory of, of middle and high latitude cyclones. Yeah. Um, dynamics became sexy. And so much so that when I went through graduate school here in the 70s, um, we learned almost no thermodynamics. And the radiative transfer we learned was very formal, but we never learned how to apply it. In other words, it would be like learning the equations of motion for a fluid without learning the conceptual simplification that we call quasi-geostrophic theory that allows us to understand what's going on. We didn't yeah, have that. Right. So we knew that potential temperature was conserved, and that was our thermodynamics. Mm. 
it had gone way too far the other direction. Mm. So now the tropical meteorology community was interesting because it very heavily observational, but they didn't have the sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time in the culture of science. They didn't hadn't developed the kind the kinds of tools that Charney developed with quasi-geostrophy just didn't work in the tropics. Right. And they didn't have something nice to take its place that did work. Right. And so they were kind of forced to, to, to do things that you do when you don't have a good theoretical framework. You observe things, you come up with, I won't call them theories, you come up with plausible kind of hand-waving explanations. Right. And if you went to a tropical meteorology con conference as late as the early and mid-80s, that's what you heard. But then there's this other unfortunate cultural phenomena that you see in physics and other fields where, you know, in the 60s, a bunch of different classically trained fluid dynamicists said, oh, we're just going to march into this field yeah. and clean up. Right. And Charney was one of them. Of course, he wasn't he was not an arrogant man. I mean, he didn't have that arrogance right. at all. But he tackled the problem, on the other hand, without really looking at what had been already been done. Yeah. There were theoreticians like Kleinschmidt and Real, yeah, so forth. And um, George Carrier at Harvard had another theory for the steady state hurricane. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. But all of a sudden, these tropical people who had their own culture, their own way of doing things... These big city slickers, if you want to think of them that way, <laughs> came yeah. in from other fields and said, this, you know, what you've done is really not right. This is how it works. And you know what? It turned out they were wrong. Yeah. And by the 80s, it was, I mean, it's pretty clear they were wrong. Carrier's model didn't work. Right. And so um, when I came along, of course, I didn't know much of the cultural background. Oh, here comes another city slicker right, right. from MIT who's going to tell us how things yeah. work. Of course, there, there's pushback. And, you know, that's okay yeah. up to a point because skepticism is usually a good thing in science. I mean, don't you think that part of it was not just the things you described, but also that until, I don't know, relatively recently, I mean, the, there was not the numerical models weren't any good at making forecasts in the tropics either. So that was one thing that kind of helped dynamics be ascendant in the middle latitudes. that they, there was, you know, actual results, for you know, you could actually get a result. You could do a decent forecast in the tropics, you know, if the models aren't any good, then why should you listen to the people talking about models? I mean, it was kind of, this is why when I think one thing that happened is climate sort of changed it because everybody, you know, the model's getting better, but also everybody, the fact that climate became such a big problem in the field and people who come into climate, whether they, if, if they're, that's their focus, then the distinction between tropics and mid-latitudes is not such a big, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it's not a, yeah. it doesn't come with so much baggage attached to it. And I think that's what eventually kind of erased well, it to some extent. Because you don't feel this tension anymore really very it, much. I mean, it's, also it's, it's just people yeah. are, I mean, Gray's gone and a few other it, people. It, it ages off the system after a while. But what's really heartening for me to see is, the younger generation, and I include you in that, coming along, yeah, which say, we're still true, but, yeah. you know, who who know their dynamics, who know their GFD, and aren't afraid to deal with systems that have phase change of water. And yeah. the thing, the really great thing is the development 
of frameworks, simplifying frameworks for the that work in the tropics, like your weak temperature gradient approximation, yeah. that allow people to think through it and understand it. And that's where the intellectual excitement is. You know, running a model and getting the right answer is not my idea of fun, okay? Right. Um, it's not my idea of progress or having a good time doing science. It's when you really think you understand it, and you can't understand something through the raw equations. You need a conceptual, quantitative uh, framework like quasi-geostrophic theory for mid-latitudes, yeah. and like weak temperature gradient for the tropics. Right. That that's when you know you're making progress. So we, you know we can't hope to do justice to all the different science in your career. So to skip over some stuff, I thought it would be good to talk about um, global warming and how that sort of came in. To things, I mean, I'm. I think where my perception of where that started to be a big factor in your work was around the 2005 paper that got so much attention. This because it came out the same year as, you know, all the horrible storm, Katrina, all other horrible storms that year. Mm -hmm. But of course, that wasn't your first time thinking about the problem. And in fact, um, I mean, I had the perception when I was a student here that you were sort of still a little skeptical about I was. Um, a lot of the aspects of mainstream climate science and, yeah. and whether water vapor feedback in particular. Hmm. And, and I wonder if you could sort of say a few things about that and your evolution on that. Yeah. Subject. I mean, I think the, unfortunately the word skeptic itself has evolved. Right? Yeah. Well, right. and I was skeptical, not in the sense of being denial or negative skeptical of the idea that we knew uh, as much about the climate system as we thought we knew. Yeah. But I would say, Adam, that, excuse me, I would say that my first foray into climate was after developing this sort of theory of potential intensity, realizing yeah. very shortly after I published a paper in Nature 1987, recognizing that if you change the climate, for whatever reason, whether it was natural yeah. or man-made, that this number changed appreciably. Which uh, the Could number be. the number is the, the the maximum intensity a hurricane can have That's right. under a given set of climate conditions. That's right. Yeah. And I think I estimated that it was like a 7% change, I can't remember the exact number, uh, in this upper bound on intensity for every degree of sea surface warming from a climate model. I, was, I actually got my hands on the output of the GIS climate model I'm because we had a connection with GIS. Yeah, yeah. And um, and published, you know, uh, a table showing how this potential intensity would change okay. with climate. And so I got naturally interested in climate at that point, but I didn't yeah. really work, as you point out. The 2005 paper, I sometimes, actually a lot, regret having written that paper at all. I mean, that was, first of all, I think it turns out to be kind of wrong in a way. Not yeah. wrong in the sense that anything I published was not true but wrong in the inference uh, that resulted from it, that, you know, I sort of stumbled on this correlation. I was fooling around with data of Atlantic um, hurricane power. It's a measure of uh, power of a hurricane and the sea surface temperature. Yeah. And it was much more sensitive than I had calculated in 1987 for reasons that I didn't understand then. But if you read that paper, I say... Here are the possible reasons for this, okay? Yeah. Uh, which global warming was one reason, but it wasn't the only one right. that was in there. And then that, you know, if you want to kill a correlation in nature, publish it. 
Because right after that paper was published, that correlation fell apart. Right. So, <laughs> like so many other things in science, I, I, I'm not very, uh, not very proud of that particular paper. Regardless of what, how you may feel about the paper itself, it came at a moment when the whole field radically changed. Yeah. I yes. mean, the, the level of interest in hurricanes and climate, you know, b- blew up. At that point, I mean, I remember very clearly because I was there, yeah, um, and, and working on it, and all of a sudden nobody cared, for, and then all of a sudden everybody did. Well, that and was a coincidence. Uh, the publication of that paper, a similar paper by Peter Webster yep. and Greg Holland yep. and Katrina. Yeah, if it hadn't been for Katrina, I, don't I know think that those papers would have made. That no, I know Susanna and I planned a workshop on hurricanes and climate, and we planned it before Katrina happened or your paper came out. Mm. We thought we'd have a few people in a quiet little workshop. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it was like this huge thing, and people were know, uh, quite a, excited, and we had a lot of was, interest. Yeah. It was a crazy sleigh ride that period of time, I remember it. But leading up to that, though, I mean, is it possible to describe your evolution of your thinking about the climate problem overall? I mean, as opposed, not, leave the hurricanes out of it. I mean, just the, mm-hmm. the view of the, how, how serious the problem is, what we know about it. You know the hmm. degree degree of skepticism about the mainstream, you know the IPCC reports and all the other stuff that was being produced, starting yeah. around the time. I mean, you've I guess your education here started around the time of the Charney report, so you'd been around yeah. for that. Yeah, you know, whole. I was uh, I think wholly ignorant of the Charney report at the time it was written, even though I was Charney student. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, uh, kind of amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, he didn't actually teach that stuff here, or if he did, right. I didn't take that course. And Charney did so many things. I never, it was never on my radar in the 70s. It just wasn't. I, right. The whole climate thing, it wasn't, a lot of people, I would say most scientists weren't conscious of it in the 70s. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, the catalyzing thing was, I guess the reason I was, I sort of came across as skeptical and I was skeptical in my mind was not the Charney report, which we weren't aware of. It was the testimony by Jim Hansen mm. to Congress in 1988. Yeah. 88 happened to be a pretty hot summer in, in the East coast. Yeah. You can look at the records. It was pretty hot. Uh, and Jim Hansen, who I sort of knew and didn't know very well, got in front of Congress and said he was, you know, 99%, I can't remember the exact, very high number, 99% sure that this, that we had detected this global warming signal. Right. And the problem was, is it came as a shock to scientists because they had not themselves come to that conclusion or even had, had the data to, to draw that conclusion. In other words, it's hard to understand this now, but Although we had been measuring temperature from around the world, arguably since the mid well since the mid nineteenth century, by that time, by the late east, there hadn't been a scientifically rigorous, widely published analysis of that. Yeah, and that came because you can't just say, "Well, we're going to average all these temperatures." Right? It's much yeah, more yeah, complicated yeah. Yeah. than that. And those analyses were beginning to done. The field of paleoclimate was exploding then in a really great 
intellectually exciting way. Yeah. But a lot of us weren't familiar with that, and that a lot of the developments came after that. Yeah. So I looked at Hansen, and most people, I think, looked at Hansen as, as having gone way out on a limb. Right. Now, we know now that he wasn't. Yeah. But back then, we <laughs> thought he was. He says, where's yeah. the, show me the data. Right. Show me the data. Well, they did eventually yeah. show us the data. But I thought at the time it was an irresponsible comment. Yeah. And I kind of rebelled against that. I said, this is manipulative. In hindsight, he understood more about it, obviously, than I did. That I knew that. Yeah. But he understood a lot more about it than a lot of other people. No, can. I remember you but, uh, being very um, let's skeptical in the in the positive sense. Of the, I mean, in the non-political sense of the word about the water vapor magnitude of the water vapor feedback. Pretty um, as all the MIT faculty basically were, except Peter Stone, as you say, pretty critical of climate models. But by two thousand and five. Um, or shortly thereafter, yeah, something had changed. I mean, you were using the climate models to yeah. downscale with your hurricane model, and eventually you became quite outspoken and almost a you know. Well, let me a, tell you a little bit about that. I mean, a yeah, lot of please. that evolution was my involvement uh, beginning in the around 1990 in building my own convection scheme, yeah. building my own single column model, the simplest climate model yes. you can build. As you know, I've used this yeah. model lots of times. <laughs> yeah, well, I, for many years. I know, I'm saying that for the benefit of the... Uh, yeah. but, but the, you know, I really wanted to understand what was... Con- and I still want to understand what controls water vapor. Right. And I recognized a few things back then that I wish I had been more vocal about. I... I was finding a strong sensitivity of atmospheric water vapor to the assumptions one was making about the right. microscopic physical processes in the clouds. Right. And I was getting huge foot, uh, pushback from the climate community. Right. And I said, and I published a paper with Adrian Tompkins showing that the climate models of that generation were way under-resolved in the vertical. Right. That they couldn't simulate water. Right. And and I was upset, and I had arguments with people you and I respect very much yeah. that these climate models could not be trusted for the major feedback mechanism, right. which is the water vapor feedback. Right. And I think I was right. Now, it, it, it turns out that the answers they were getting back then weren't far off the mark, but I had no reason to trust them, but right, right. I could see at least how to fix a lot of those problems, one of which is simple. You increase the vertical resolution of the models right. a lot, and that has happened yeah. more recently. And uh, the whole climate community has finally come around very recently to understanding that you've got, that it boils down, a lot of the problem boils down to cloud microphysics. So here's where I actually had a little bit of a, uh, I wasn't convinced by some of the arguments you've made in this time because it mm-hmm. seemed to me you were using radio convective equilibrium uh, results for it, and there you have, so you have no large scale circulation, right? And so the microphysics has a lot of freedom, but when you have ascending or descending air masses, it doesn't have as much control over well things. Okay, so that, it so. doesn't have as much. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I think you can see a lot of what you're talking about, Adam, by graduating from one one column to two columns. Right, yeah. Where you have a descending column, and we were pretty early off the mark, actually, in doing that, although not for this particular purpose of looking yeah. at water vapor, but other things. And um, broadly speaking, if you don't have dynamics, but 
operating between the two columns. Yeah. The down column, the column without convection, becomes way too dry. I mean, much drier than we ever observe in nature. And that the moisture of that column depends upon the dynamics, which we would know in the real world are eddies that mix water vapor from the moist region to the dry. That's undeniably true. Yeah. And it does reduce the sensitivity to microphysics, but not even close to reducing it to right, zero. It okay. reduces by about half. Okay. So if you like, I was half right. Okay, all right. Uh, but they were half wrong. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> you know, the single column model, which you could get around at least the resolution problem very easily. Yeah. In spite of the sensitivity, the, so the general positive, strongly positive nature of the water rate feedback was robust. Yeah. And it was at that point doing experiments with the single column model, mm. in spite of these problems, yeah. I realized, yeah, this amplification factor is likely to be pretty positive. Okay. And I started to be less skeptical. Right. But now that the climate model, by even by 2005, when a lot of these problems had been addressed, yeah. I was somewhat less right. skeptical of the models. Right. So, so I mean, yeah. during this time, and you by, by 2005, I mean, you had become... I almost uh, engaged in, I don't know if advocacy is the right word, but you became out, publicly outspoken. You, since then, yeah. you've been writing a lot of things. Sure. And it's been, you know, I, a, a, a model that, you know, um, I, you know, a lot of us admire you for that and I, you know, emulate it. But, um, but the history is interesting. And I'm just curious about, seem to feel some social responsibility to be outspoken upon this, which not every scientist feels. Many people think they shouldn't do it, even if they have strong views. You know, well, they should keep quiet, so I'm curious how you... There's, there are a lot of risks involved, uh, not just to yourself, which yeah. I don't care about that much, but to the field and to the efficacy of science. So uh, it's complicated. Let me try to tell you where I'm coming from on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think scientists in general are most effective when they do their science and they can communicate it to people who are in positions to make decisions if decisions are necessary on the basis of the science and not get involved in the politics of it because that tends to taint one's credibility and may bias one and so forth. But, I, as you say, I became more outspoken in spite of that attitude. Yeah. And what did it was this, that I think it's hard to remember now because of the particular culture we're embedded in at the moment that through the 90s and even into the early 2000s in the U.S., the political system was responding sluggishly, but it was responding. There wasn't cl- a lot of climate denial. There was some. Mm, I, would, yeah. I, I would agree with you on the overall trajectory, but not on the timeline. I think it was... I think, think there was a lot already by the 90s and 2000s. It, they, there could have been, but it really started to go downhill yeah, in, right. in the 2000s. Yeah. And it became politicized for whatever reason. And it was quite clear that, as we now know from Naomi Oreskes' work and so forth, that there was this huge pile of money that was going into protecting a very, very large business, the fossil fuel business, and yeah. Exxon and so forth were paying huge bucks to disinform. And that enraged me and most scientists because disinformation is the antithesis of what right. we do. Right. Uh, and 
you know, you can't act on rage, but what you can do is try to counter the deleterious effect of disinformation. Right. And I felt an obligation to do that. And I felt well positioned because I wasn't an alarmist. I didn't have a previous record of shouting that the sky is falling down. Right. Um, But I thought, yes, uh, somebody has to talk, to speak out about this and, and counter this very pernicious uh, disinformation that's going out. Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel this very acutely now because it's gone so much further yeah. south, um, hmm. and I find myself looking at it like from the point of view of history, you know, that we're really in a scary kind of dark moment now, um, and, you know, I try to think what would it, look like if I were to look back on myself from decades hence, you know, what should I be doing given that we're in positions of great power and responsibility and authority. I mean, an academic, it's not a really powerful person, but you know, we have tenure, we have great privilege. We can say what we want and we don't get fired. So like what's, what's the right way to use that? You know, what's the right way to act in this situation? What's the, what's the response? What's our responsibility here? I mean, I think you have your own answer that you've just said, but I, I'm struggling with this one. Maybe there's something more. You know, Hansen's chaining himself to pipelines and stuff. Should we all be doing that? I, I str- honestly struggle with this. I think that we all have to make our own decisions about that. And I think society wants us always to be objective and truthful. That's our value. Yeah. But how vigorously we try to state the truth, if we yeah. think that we're trying to help society uh, with something like climate warming, that that's a very tough decision. If you get too vigorous about it, people rightly start to wonder if you're if you're losing your objectivity. Could we talk a little about? So before we turned on the microphones, we were talking a little bit about um, about climate and risk, and that this is an issue that you know we've talked about a lot before. Um, you started working on this as far as I could see. Uh, when you came up with your downscaling model in the mid-2000s, and that's what got me interested. I had never thought of this problem before, seeing you mm. talk about it somewhere, and I got interested in it. And we're now working on it, too, with our group at Columbia, as you know. And we've, yeah, and, um, that's great. But this is a problem. The, the idea, if, correct me if I'm wrong, comes out of the insurance industry. I'm guessing that's who you got it from. I mean, not the idea of how to do your modeling, but the, yeah. the idea of the problem that, that exists, of, of measuring the, the risks of rare yeah. events that are outside right. the historical record. That's right. I mean, I could see that the actuarial approach to hurricane risk is not working Yeah, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I sort of was vaguely aware of Peter Vickery's work on generating synthetic tracks from historical track statistics, and I thought that was headed the right direction. And, you know, honestly, Adam, I don't, I just thought it was really sort of an interesting thing. Could you, could you generate from a physical model large sets of plausible hurricanes driven by the climate state as provided by a reanalysis or a climate model? Right. I thought that was kind of. So, I mean, but, yeah, so the, the insurance industry had already been doing this kind of problem in the larger sense, they weren't using physical models. They weren't using They were using statistical models. That's right. But so you've been doing this for a while. Now a few of us, other people in academia have gotten into it. And, Mm -hmm. but what we were talking about before, and I wondered if we could come back to it now that we're recording is, 
um, how now this is becoming a broader problem in climate where everybody, not everybody, there's a, there's a increasing need and an increasing perception of the need to, uh, understanding of it to figure out what the climate risk really is. I mean, what is, what is happening with global warming and the understanding that we can only understand that probabilistically, um, you know, because there is huge uncertainty. I mean, as the skeptics say, you guys don't really, you know, you, the, the uncertainty is really big. The reason that's a disingenuous criticism of mainstream climate science is, first of all, that mainstream climate science acknowledges the uncertainties pretty clearly. As, mm -hmm. But the other thing is that the uncertainty doesn't make the answer better. It makes it worse, generally speaking. That's right. And so, um, but this isn't fully been grappled with in all the aspects of the field. It's only now that the economists are just barely beginning to think about it. And, uh, and so I wonder if you could sort of explain to me again your... You're thinking on that yeah. problem. Uh, so if you if you look at the way most of us deal with common risks, you learn something very interesting about it. So supposing you're going to buy a house, let's just say, and you're going to be worried about certain risks, like, for example, the possibility your house might burn down. You could be very careful, but some wiring might go. Lightning could strike, you know, things beyond your control could happen. And there's lots of really good statistics on house fires. It depends on what kind of house you have and all. But that's supposing that you have a credible uh, assessment that over the 30 years you're going to own this house, let's say, there's a 5% chance it will burn down. I'm making up the number, but some relatively low percentage. Right? Yeah. Well, most people, not everyone, would say, well, hell, there's a 95% chance it won't burn down, so why should I worry? The rest of us buy an insurance policy, right? And the insurance policy uh, recognizes the fact that although the probability is low, the consequences are horrendous, okay? Right. You lose everything. Yeah. And if you don't have an insurance policy, you can't even build something back. As is it, happening to many people in right. California as we speak. That's right. So most of us are smart and we buy insurance. And what we're doing, right, has been formalized by people who've studied risk for a long time, is risk is the product of probability and cost. And yeah. it's that statement, right? So it's a low probability, but it's a high cost, so it's a moderate risk. And you, you know uh, you can put a number uh, a money, a monetary number on that for a house fire risk, yeah. and say, well, it's therefore worth it for me to buy so much, pay so much for an insurance policy, and we do that in all kinds of settings. I mean, if you walk uh, your eight-year-old daughter to uh, the corner to catch your school bus, which is across the street, and she's a little late, and to make the school bus, she'd have to run across a busy street. And let's say you made the instant, and if she misses the bus, you're going to have to be late for work because you're going to have to drive her to school. You calculate in your head, there's a 1% probability that if she goes for the bus, she'll be run over. Almost nobody would let her go. Right, exactly. Right? Now, this all sounds very obvious. Yeah. But what we're doing with climate is violates that, Yeah. I would say, in a huge way. We say, yeah. okay, 
the median, the highest probability outcome is that it's going to warm up by two degrees or something like that. And then we calculate how much that will cost and how much that's completely wrong. Right. That, in other words, you're referring yeah. here to most of the climate economics literature. Most of the climate economics. And there are other people like Marty Weitzman who sort of pointed out the, the what's wrong with this. Yeah. Is that, you know, there, it's, you worry about the tail of the risk. You worry about yeah. that 5% chance your house is going to burn down and yeah. you base your insurance on not, not on the 95% chance that it won't. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, climate is not nearly as severely weighted as 5% versus 95%. It's a much higher probability of a bad outcome. Yes. But there may be a 2% probability or something like that of a, I'll use the word, um, advisedly here, existential threat. Yeah. There's 2% that it's civilization ending. There are scenarios. Yeah. That you have so much water and food problems, you get into crises that involved uh, that result in a nuclear conflict. No, the probability, fortunately, isn't high. It may, let's say, it's two percent. Right. How much are you willing to pay to avoid that? Right. Uh, and that's the question. They should they should formally pose this as a risk problem. Yeah. And not as a signal detection problem. Yeah. So there is a new paper by. Uh, mm. One of the authors is Gernot Wagner, who worked with Weizmann yeah. uh, when he was still alive, and um, that says essentially this. Yeah. So it is coming into the economics literature, but only now, I think. Well, I just heard a talk yesterday where they didn't do that, and I was pretty yeah. appalled. Yeah, I mean, of course, one yeah. Yeah. It, something that makes it even more, I mean, the, I think the insurance analogies are very apt, but the thing that makes this one a little different although not better just just maybe worse in a way is that um in the case of the insurance you know at least you know the probabilities i mean when it comes to climate we don't really know the probabilities of these different scenarios i mean we have these different models that predict different things but how do you attach probabilities to them when you don't you know it's the uncertainty is it, we say it's epistemic rather than aleatoric meaning that it's like it's not some distribution and you're just rolling the dice it's a it's a you know a case where you don't know what the dice are exactly. You know you you have some idea. Have, and we have a record of climate change now to go on. So I think that the oh, I'm not saying yeah. we don't know anything. It's just like yeah, it's yeah. hard to put numbers on these probabilities. Yeah. Yeah, but I think we still have to do our best to do that. Yeah, we're never going to be able to do it perfectly. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, interesting and, intellectual and, problem yeah. to think like of the the ethics and the philosophy of it when you don't know those things. Yeah, you know, right. and then how does that change how you? think about it yeah right so this is informing your academic work too now i mean well, i guess it started from yeah. the hurricane risk but now it's a much bigger yeah it you know it um as you pointed out adam i try to uh i think some of us um especially when you get to be older yeah should try to have a, a beneficial influence if we can on society. And I have specialized in talking to climate denier groups over really? the years. Yes. I, I, um, was invited by somebody, um, who I remember years ago was sitting right where you're sitting now, uh -huh. by the way, um, to, uh, to attend the tea party convention in Las Vegas. I think it's five or six years wow. ago. Is the tea party still around? <laughs> Well, it was then. It was at its heyday. Yeah. And it's it's hardly... Uh, Did you do it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the guy said, well, we're having this uh, convention, and we're going to have an infotainment in the evening, 
where we're going to put climate science on trial, oh. and we want you to be a witness for the defense. Oh. And they have all the classic deniers, not Lindzen, but some people you and I know yeah. uh, as the as the um, testifying on the other side. And this man who invited me was going to be the prosecuting attorney. Oh. I said, no, I said, I said, tell me this again. So, Tea Party, Las Vegas, I hate Las Vegas, <laughs> July 15th <laughs> in Las Vegas. And I'm supposed to be a witness for the defense when the jury is the Tea Party. I said, why would I do this? <laughs> so, I said to him, um, by way of politely saying no or so, I thought, I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. If as a prosecuting attorney in questioning me, you will at some point change the subject and talk about solutions, energy in particular, I'll do it. And to my surprise, he said yes. Uh-huh. I went to Las Vegas uh-huh. to the Tea Party convention, sitting on this as a, you know, the one person defending this whole thing. Really the one person? I mean, it was I think you versus was, everybody else? I think it was me. There must have been a few other people. I just don't remember. Oh, yeah. I don't, can't imagine it was just me, and I wish I remembered it better. But he kept his promise, and he asked me about energy. And I, this is the, the key insight I actually got from a politician, is that the smart people, not the crazies, who say they don't believe uh, climate science, are expressing a deep fear of what the solution will look like. Yeah, no, this is now understood widely. So I, I think maybe it wasn't that. I, un- I understood it then, and I, and I got the, tried to get them into some extent, so get them very excited about what the solutions could look like. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, I pointed out all the statistics on what China and to some extent Russia are doing yeah. in the decarbonization right. business arena. Right. I pointed out it's a six trillion dollar market. Yeah. Um it's a third of US GDP. Why are we sitting on the sidelines? Basically you change the subject to, to focus on the solution and believe it or not, you can get the same individual right. say, I don't believe you about climate, but I'm completely on board with the solution. Well, that's good. And that's good. You don't really, I mean, it makes you feel good if they agree with you about the science, but what you really want them to do is do the right thing. Yeah. And you can get them to do that without satisfying the first. And I got the jury hung, right, which good. wasn't supposed to happen. Good. <laughs> so I, was I mean, it is a strange thing because you yeah. do have a lot of, you know, it, it is solution, what do they call it? Being so, so, uh, there's a word, there's an hour phrase for it, solution being a solution averse or something um, from people who, you know, don't, don't accept climate science because of, you know, it implies global socialism or something who don't, I mean, but, or say, and then when it comes down to it, some will say, well, the cost of doing something is so astronomical that we can't, you know, why, where's the belief in the ingenuity of the private sector? Like why we put, put some money into this. Why can't all these smart, you know, it seems in- inconsistent. Yeah. Well, you can do with better. The, you can do better than that Adam, by yeah. pointing out that there are other countries who are doing this and beating us to the punch. Right. So it becomes a matter of lo- of losing out right. economically if you don't do something. About right. It. So as long as we're talking about this, I mean, so we talked about your evolution on climate, but you also, I mean, 
have sort of cha- uh, can we talk about your becoming a cha- uh, dropping the Republican Party as long as we're talking about the Tea <laughs> sure. Party and all those things? Okay, yeah, that's a good. Or if, I mean, yeah. if you're willing to, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I I think we all have pasts that we're ashamed of in some <laughs> ways. I was a Republican from early from I would say the early '70s, and the reason I became one is that, in my view, and I still hold this view, mm-hmm. back then, yeah. The irrational excesses were mostly on the left. Yeah. And I. Just being the 60s or something. I remember getting into arguments with people about, you know, how can you uh, sanction, how can you um, approve of what Pol Pot is doing in Cambodia? Right. And being told that they had a, a lofty goal, so it was okay. Stalin. Right. And I get very upset about that. Right. Because, you know, you're talking about millions. I mean, of that, I, I mean, we yeah. should say that that was not like the platform of the Democratic Party. Nobody was approving of. I mean, no, no, no. That's yeah. right. No, the Democrat <laughs> was certainly not the platform of the Democratic Party, but it was certainly the attitude of a lot of the people I spoke with, yeah. you know, academics and universities. Right. Yeah. And it got me upset. And also, we were in a terrible period of stagflation. Yeah. Where the inflation rates were unbelievable. Yeah, and I enthusiastically embraced Ronald Reagan's view, right. and I think yeah. that at that time, that's what we needed. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm not, I don't regret that. Yeah, I don't regret that, and I yeah. think people like Reagan that era. I'm sure if Ronald Reagan were alive today, he'd be horrified by what's happened to the Republican I hope so. Party, and. Um, my the beginning of my the end of my association and i admired intellectual there was a lot of intellectual component to conservatism william f buckley yeah. and william f buckley junior you could agree with him or disagree with him. a he was very smart and b he was very civilized yeah and he had people on his show who were the opposite side of you know he had right. the longest running show and yeah, the network I've actually television. never seen it, I don't think. It's worth. It's yeah. worth it, even though, of course, they're old now. He had people who absolutely disagree with him, and they would disagree, but they would be civilized. One of his best friends yeah. um, was um, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. And uh-huh. he was completely yeah. opposite in their politics. Right. And I said, isn't this a wonderful world where you can be totally, yeah, it was just the yeah. opposite of now, right? Yeah. Totally disagree, have a civilized debate, go out and yes. have a beer afterwards. Um, and Buckley, when he came in, kicked out of the conservative movement the crazies of that day, of the 50s, the John Birch Society. Right. And anyway. Yeah. Those guys are running the show now. But they're, they're back. When he died, <laughs> they all came crawling back oh, in. Oh, I see. It's and, losing uh, Buckley. That was a problem. Well, <laughs> it was losing that spirit of. Yeah. Uh, and, and when the climate denial started from the Republicans, that's. That did it for me. I was never going to have anything to do with them after that. Now it's just, I'm I'm an independent, uh, yeah, a registered independent, and have been for some time. But I have nothing to do. Were you as traumatized as some of us by Trump? Absolutely traumatized by Trump. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, me too. It was uh, it's horrible, and it's horrible now, and it's hard to believe that things have gone bad so quickly. Yeah, yeah. As an academic, I you know. I woke up the day after that just sort of thinking, what's the point of what we're doing? You know, if this guy can get elected by just, I mean, the politics of it and the policies were all upsetting and the, and the, you know, I was concerned about all the, but, but, but as, as in a matter of personal identity, like here we are trying to talk about what's, what the world is, how it works, what are, what's true and what's not true, you know, 
Nobody cares, apparently. Yeah. You know, that was what was, that was really traumatizing. Yeah, no, it me. was, I'm still traumatized. But. Okay, so um, I don't want to take up your whole night, but could we talk for, you tell me if you don't want to do this, but um, since you brought it up earlier, when, when, uh, before we turned the microphones on, would it, uh, but maybe you'll be willing to talk about it since you've written about it publicly. Can we talk a little bit about, about MIT and what's going on now with the post Epstein and, yeah. and that? I mean, I don't want, you know. No, that's fine. I mean, um, look, the, the whole way that uni- private universities and to some extent public universities have been financed have changed a lot in the last few decades. Yeah. We were in the early 90s, we were surviving mostly off of the overhead of federal grants. And now a big chunk of our operating revenue comes from income from an endowment. MIT, prior to Chuck Vest's reign here, had no endowment to speak of. It's hard to understand now. And now we have a very sizable one. But with that, and, and I should say that now the president of most private universities spends the bulk of his or her time raising money yep. for the institute. That's the job. That's the job. And, and some of the faculty, too. <laughs> and some, sometimes the faculty are kind of been trained into this. Yeah. And it has some benefits and it has some downsides. Yeah. And the, the, you start to get into some interesting, almost philosophical problems with it because... First of all, there's no such thing as a morally perfect donor any more than there's a morally perfect anyone. Right. So the question is how bad uh, a donor are you willing to accept money from? And there's a different philosophy. Yeah. Um, what universities used to do to draw the line is to say, at the very least, we're not going to let a donor tell us what to do. Yeah. So there was a famous example... I can't remember when, but a long time ago, 20 years ago, um, that Yale turned down a huge gift from two brothers in Texas. I think they were the Hunt brothers. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. Who wanted to give them a huge pile of money, but in return they had to teach a particular course mm-hmm. that they weren't then teaching. And it, was, it sounded like an almost trivial Request, but Yale, out of a matter of principle, turned down that money. Yeah. And I think that was the right thing to do. You can't yeah. let the donors. Uh, here at MIT, my first indication that something was going wrong was in 2015 when a couple of things converged. First, some of my faculty colleagues and I got together to teach what we hoped would be a first-rate and very popular undergraduate course on climate. Mm-hmm. We advertised all over the Institute, uh, conscious of the fact that similar courses at University of Chicago and Harvard had hundreds of students. We got seven. Wow. And we taught it maybe five or six years. We never had more than seven students in the class. Wow. I thought, gee, this is odd. And, you know... There were some first-rate, not me, there were first-rate instructors in this, people like Susan Solomon, mm-hmm. really good, Sarah Seeger, excellent. Um, and, you know, I thought that was odd. 2015, <clears throat> MIT had to deal with a lot of pressure from the undergraduates to divest from fossil fuels. 
And they handled it by appointing a committee of faculty and students, and I was on this committee, to have a, a, a year-long or semester-long discussion of what MIT should be doing broadly construed in the climate arena, including the divestment issue. Yeah. And we put together a whole bunch of events, the first of which was a really good debate in Kresge, yeah. on the divestment issue, including people like Naomi Oreskes, yeah, for example. Yeah. And the upshot of the debate was that universities probably would be hypocritical to divest from fossil fuels because we're using them, everyone's using them, yeah. but should not invest in any enterprise whatsoever that was known to and had been proven to be engaged in disinformation campaigns because it's the antithesis of education. Yep. And we made a strong recommendation to the Institute. But I want to go back to the beginning of the process when an administrator, it wasn't the president of the Institute, someone high up, I don't remember what it was, came in to this whole group and said, do what you have to do, but don't go out of your way to piss off our donors. Mm. That was like, for me, waving a red flag in front of a bull. I said, what do you mean, piss off the donors? Mm. Why would we go out of our way to piss off anyone? Are you suggesting that we shouldn't uh, be forthright about the climate problem? What are you mm. suggesting? And the mm. guy sort of backed off it. And it, I came to understand that they were referring in, to one in particular, David Koch, mm. who was on our not just on our board of trustees, which is called the MIT Corporation, mm. but the executive committee. Mm which already looks bad. You have a major donor mm. who's in a controlling position. Mm. That should never have happened. And I yeah. got a very bad impression at that point of this. That The next thing that happened was at the end of the process, we submitted, as we were supposed to, a list of recommendations, one of which I thought was a no-brainer. And this is it, that I had done research. Every major institution that's sort of the MIT's league, including your institution, Columbia, yeah. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, have a standing committee as an institution um, that is concerned about the ethics of investment. They don't make decisions, they give advice. Yeah. Uh, they're advisory committee on investment and ethics. So they try to establish some principles and they may be asked to look at a portfolio, and you know, they might have spotted something that happened very years ago at MIT that we were investing in these characters in Rwanda that were committing genocide. I mean, we weren't in, we weren't funding the, the you know we weren't funding them directly, but we were funding enterprises that they were relying on, and that caused a blow up at the time. So we said basically, MIT MIT was the only institution. It did not have such an advisory committee. Uh -huh. We merely suggested we establish one. Not only did MIT say no, uh, they said no in a, in a very unpleasant way. They accused uh, us of trying to form a star commission where we were going to go into everybody's ethical you know, behavior in their lives. They made up all the stuff, which was not in the report. Yeah. So they dismissed it with prejudice, and we remain the only institution I wow. know about that has no such... Well, wait, so why weren't? The, but how? How were the? Why weren't there more than seven kids in your class, though? Okay, happen? so I at first I thought that was an entirely independent datum, right? Yeah. It had nothing to do with it. <clears throat> now I wonder. 
um, that, uh, you know, institutions have wittingly or unwittingly ethoses. And if you have yeah. an institution whose board is nervous about upsetting donors over climate, yeah. it may even sort of, I don't, can't prove it, but it may filter down to uh, decisions about undergraduate admissions. You admissions? Know? Yeah, we don't want kids who are going to agitate on this climate issue here wow. at MIT. Yeah, because I was thinking there's not really a mechanism in the university to keep kids from registering from a class. So No, no, no. But you could make decisions about whom to admit. Jeez. And, but that's all. Do you think the student body here is, his, is not interested in climate? I mean, in, in those days, yes. In those days, four years ago. They, they were interested very much in solutions. Uh, there were lots of students interested in solar technology and wind and yeah. nuclear and so forth. There still are, but you could not get them interested in the climate science. Right. And that is now changing very fast Yeah, for changing. reasons I also don't understand. Well, the whole <laughs> culture is changing. I yeah, mean, yeah. the youth is, I mean, it's a very different scene than even a few years ago. Even my kids are, who are in college now are like, I feel like already old. You know, they're, they're, there's already another generation, you know, coming that's, up. That's well, very, the, the generation just coming in to undergraduate is very activist. Yeah. And interested in climate as a science. And now I can't swear to anything about what's happening at MIT. And MIT is at the forefront of a lot of institutions in coming up with, you know, carbon-free energy sources, ways of extracting carbon from yeah. the atmosphere, the technical side of it. Right. But we're way behind in, for example the carbon footprint of our own campus is extremely high. Right. And it's not getting much smaller. Yeah. Uh, we're behind on using the campus as kind of a living laboratory to see how we can, as a community, do better on this. Yeah. And we're recognized for being behind. Yeah. And what I have tried to explain to people who will listen is that being paranoid about protecting this pool of donors right. at all costs has actually also cost you financially. Yeah. Because there's a lot of donors, I believe, who are out there who would like to give to MIT but won't because we're missing in action right. on this issue. But, so we should yeah. say for anybody who's like been asleep or hasn't read the news, uh, is that what happened at MIT that, that made this issue front and center was not None of this. your thing, but yeah. that, that um, uh, Jeffrey, Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein was giving all this money to the media lab and um, apparently... Uh, uh, well after we knew he, what we knew all about him yeah. um, and uh, it was it was covered up and so the head of the media lab has now resigned some weeks ago in the um, uh, place for, I get alumni emails so for just from reading those alone you know the place seems somewhat embattled I mean presidents um, you know caught yeah. up in it and everything yeah. so but this has brought attention to the issue um, maybe not the way you would have wanted to get it, but um, yeah. So, but now you have presumably a more receptive audience to the to the complaint that that one shouldn't be too beholden to donors well, with ethical issues. It's not just us. I mean, I think the faculty as a whole wishes that we uh, were much more careful about whom we accept money for. Right. But there is resistance among some in the faculty about doing anything in the climate arena. Whether there are people, faculty in the engineering department who say, don't, you know, let's not worry about this climate nonsense. And, you know, they have the year of the administration sometimes. And 
Right. Uh, they're minority, but sometimes, you know, minority viewpoints carry the day if they're loud enough. And right. So but when it comes to problematic donors, surely now you have the, the administration in a way yes. that you wouldn't have before. Well, I think that's right. And I think the administration... I mean, I, you wrote yeah. a, you, you and a few others wrote a very uh, nice um, article, op-ed or something. Which I can't remember where it came out. But well, it this. came out... The identical piece came out in the student newspaper and the faculty newspaper. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, everybody feels we ought to be doing something about it. And the, and the Institute, I think, has responded pretty well. I feel this particular administration is caught, in a way, between diverging viewpoints and sentiments on the faculty and students on the one hand and the board on the other hand. Yeah. And they have established some committees i don't like the way it was established in a big hurry without a lot of input or thought uh with competition among three different ideas for committees that wound up with two whose different tasks nobody's quite sure how they differ um that are still ad hoc committees that is they're not standing committees to look at the ethics of accepting donations i think what this institution needs is one standing committee deal with the ethics of investments and donations yeah. that other universities have and to some extent are effective. And I still wish we would have that, but yeah, we don't. Um, can I ask one more? Sure. <laughs> so since we were talking about the new generation coming in and their activism yeah. and their interest in climate science, something that I've talked about with other people um, a lot lately is uh, including my own students, is the issue that um, there's a feeling, and I somewhat share it, that uh, although there's a lot we don't understand about climate science, there's a lot more to do, that as a societal problem, the fundamental problem now is political. I mean, yeah. in the sense that we know enough to know that we should be doing a lot more than we're doing, uh, and because we're not doing it, any more science is kind of detail at this point. It might be useful in some ideal world. I agree. So so the question is, if if an idealistic young person says, you know, I'm really uh, concerned about the climate problem, you know, what should I do with my education or my career? Would you advise them to be, you know, should people, would you advise them to become a scientist? Or is that a waste of time? You know, that's Uh, something I... You know, people have to ultimately follow their passions. For their passions, they're molded by the culture yeah. and by their mentors and advisors. And without a good technical solution to emissions of greenhouse gases or capturing and storing the greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. politics won't solve it. But you can't incentivize the development of you know, carbon-free technologies without politics either. So right. it works both ways. Yep. And we need strong leadership on both sides. I'll make a, I'll, I'll stick my neck out and make a prediction, okay, Good. that I'm sure I'll be sorry about. But I think the technical solutions are in hand, and they're going to be developed very rapidly by China and Russia. Wow. Somewhat in competition with each other, and that, the U.S. is going to remain on the sidelines. And so in 20 years, uh, we will be buying carbon-free technology from Russia and from China. Mm. 
they'll be making the money and we'll be sitting here somewhat poor. But at least from the point of view of the global climate, that will be you know, important steps in solving the problems. So I think, Adam, it's going to happen. It's just not going to happen here. Yeah, and maybe not fast enough. Okay, well, is there anything else we should have been talking about that we didn't? I kept you here a long time. I don't think so. Okay. Um, well, this is wonderful. Did we cover it? Yeah, I think. Okay. <laughs> it's still a pr- it's a great privilege to do what we do, right? Do yes, you, it do is. you still feel that? <laughs> oh, on a, absolutely. On a daily basis? Yeah. yeah. I really do. I mean, I can't imagine anything for me that's better than doing what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah, so. And yeah. You've it's, been doing uh, it since you were very young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably reflects a lack of imagination somewhere along the line. No, it reflects a lot of talent. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Kerry. Yeah, been my pleasure. Okay. Okay, covered a lot of ground there. How great to be able to talk at such length and in such depth to carry Emanuel. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duoton Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Thanks for listening.